This is the tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and I wanted to start by saying that this is the right place to be this weekend. I feel like it's the right place to be this weekend. Uh, I'd also like to welcome those who are watching in Manistee or for wherever you're listening or watching um, on a computer, cell phone, or whatever device you have these days. For us at our church, it's been a heavy week. It feels like it's been a heavy couple of weeks, doesn't it? Does it feel that way? Just uh, before the service tonight, I was thinking about how many people we're praying for with illness, uh, how many uh, people have been in illness long term, how many people are struggling with anxiety and depression, how many marriages seem to be hanging on, not to mention the overall anxiety just by you know, watching the news or the debate. We've suffered loss. Some of our own have experienced death this week. It's been a heavy, heavy couple of weeks. And it just kind of feels like, uh, just adds to the arsenal of reasons that we're ready for 2020 to be over. Do you agree? Do you ever get in those places where you just wish that somehow... You could uh, pray the magic prayer, do the magic thing, and somehow God would just show up and just shake the earth. You don't feel that way? I do. Even in, in well, especially in this role, you know, I, I sometimes wish I kind of had that Old Testament prophet authority just to pray the right prayer and fire would fall and take out that opposing coach. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Yeah, soccer doesn't matter at a time like this. Although our season's over, and although we don't pray to win, boy, I wish I could pray and have some fire fall. I said that twice now, didn't I? Right. Well, in times like this, it's good for us to turn to God's word. It's good for us to go there together. In our, in our series, we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, because there's always times where we need God's help where we want God's help, where we're desperate for God's help. Maybe it's a situation that you find yourself in right now. Maybe it's a situation that you're anticipating you're going to be in. And that's why there's so much anxiety. Israel was in just such a situation. They're in a dark time, a time where there was no king. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And although most of their problems were problems they brought upon themselves because they're worshiping false gods, they're chasing after the lies that the enemy and the world presented to them, we can still relate. Because sometimes I know that I chase after the lie too. There's times in my own life where the anxiety and the desperation and and the fix that I find myself in, if I'm honest, I put myself there. And so whether your situation, you can relate or not, maybe you will be in a situation like this, and maybe it's of your own making or it's not, we can still relate for, or to being desperate for God to move. Desperate, as they said in the old times, for victory. Can you relate to that? Remember in the old days when they used to say, hey, there's an area in my life where I don't have victory yet. Maybe it's within your marriage. Maybe it's with addiction. Maybe it's with a sin that you can't seem to overcome. 
Maybe life isn't what you thought it was going to be. Maybe it's an ongoing situation that you can't seem to find your way out of and you're just desperate for victory. This is everything we see in chapter 7. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to go there and we'll read through the chapter, through the story. We'll pause a few times and then we'll see what God might want to say to us. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, just a little bit of backfill. If you remember, the Israelites had lost the ark because they took it like a mascot into battle. And then last weekend, we looked at chapters four or, or uh, five and six, where God restored the ark to them miraculously. So they have the ark back, but they still have no victory. And so, essentially, what we learn right here is that time is passing. Samuel's ministry is growing. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a judge. He's a leader. And so verse three, it says, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out, to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shend and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. 
and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. And I don't know if you caught it, sometimes when someone's just reading a whole chapter, we can kind of get lost in the different names and the different places and the different times, but there's a progression here, and the centerpiece is the title of the message, which is The Lord Thundered. The Lord Thundered. And that's the good news, and I want you to keep your eye on the good news, is that we serve a God who still thunders. Do you believe that? We serve a God that still acts on behalf of his people, who still intervenes, who still shows up. And the call for us is to have faith in the God of this book, the one true God, the God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who is the God of the Old and the New Testament, who never changes. He changes everything and everyone around him, but he's the same. And he's a holy God, and he's a loving God. He's a God of justice. He's also a God of mercy and of grace. And he still thunders. And the Lord thunders here on behalf of his people, and he puts their enemies to flight. So just so you see where we're going, I've kind of organized this in in, in really four parts. There's four parts that I want to address. We'll break it down, and then we'll try to summarize it in the time we have left is we see that there was a sermon that was delivered, and then we see repentance on behalf of the people, then we see a great victory, and then there's a memorial stone. Those are the four things, a sermon, repentance, victory, and a stone. And we'll start with the sermon. And the sermon's a great sermon because it's a short sermon. I hear you. I hear you. It's a short sermon. It's a simple sermon. Now, from the text, because the text isn't exactly chronological, it tells us that Samuel was a part of this circuit where he was going from city to city as a judge. That doesn't mean he was showing up and being judgmental. It means he was leading them. And as a prophet and a priest, at least acting in those roles, he's also preaching to them. And he's been preaching this simple sermon for 20 years. And here's the sermon. It should be familiar. Because it's a sermon not unlike most of the content of most of the sermons at the tabernacle. And it goes like this. Return to the Lord. Direct your heart to him. Turn to him with your whole heart. Put away your idols and serve him only. If you do that, you'll have victory. And it's interesting, he says, not once but twice that God's interested in their hearts. It isn't just about putting the idols away. We'll get to that in a minute. But the sermon is essentially saying, God wants your whole heart. Direct your whole heart to him. God's not a God that's interested in our half-hearted worship. He starts with the heart. I want all of your heart. It's interesting that when Jesus was asked in the New Testament, what is the greatest of all the commands? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, your mind, and your strength. God's after your heart. He's after my heart. He's after the Israelites' heart. So the sermon starts with the heart. Return to the Lord with your whole heart. Direct your hearts towards him. Now, just in case you're thinking, well, I'm here, aren't I? I I'm, I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm, I'm in Manistee. I'm in Buckley. I'm, I'm a part of the church. Okay, he's got my whole heart. Now, that's not necessarily the case. 
because he says, put away your idols. Put away your idols. And he names them, the idols of Ashtaroth and Baal. And remember, these idols were the idols of all the people groups around them. Now, in 2020, it's easy for us to say, well, I don't have any idols. But I don't think that's necessarily true. In fact, if we dig deeper and we look at the type of worship that went on in the worship of Baal, Baal, that was a, uh, had everything to do with their agriculture. If they made the God of Baal uh, happy and they did the right sacrifices and they worshiped him, he would bless their crops. And the same thing with the Ashtaroth, was a fertility goddess. And part of their worship isn't even the type of thing that I can describe or should describe on a weekend in church. Because it was this twisted sex worship, essentially, which is not unlike 2020. We live in a nation that's obsessed with sex, where we identify ourselves by our sexual preference, where we're voting about it, we're arguing about it, we're shaming people about it, and that's just outside the church. And then inside the church, is it that much different? He says, I want your whole hearts, put away your idols. And if that's not the idol for you, then how many other idols do we have? The idols of our political party, that one's easy. The idol of our country, the idol of our business, the idol of the almighty dollar, the idol of how many jobs we think we have to have to make ends meet when really we're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. All of the things and all of the people that compete with serving God with our whole hearts is idolatry. And this is a sermon, it took him 20 years, the same sermon over and over. Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Get rid of the idols and serve him only. Now, the text moves rather quickly. It says that this is what Samuel spoke, and then it says, and the people did it. I've got a feeling it took some time. Do you agree? Remember, 20 years had passed. It took, man, that was actually encouraging me for this week, you know, because I was like, oh, man, I've been here for a while. Are they tired of me yet? It's like, oh, it took Samuel 20 years. I I got about three or four more to go. Preaching the same thing before you get the big payoff, right? And by the way, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me first. God wants this preacher's whole heart. He wants this preacher to put away all his idols of ministry and of greed, pride, lust, you name it. I'm no different. I'm just a man. But he says, put all of that away and serve me only. And then you'll have victory. And it says the people did it. The people did it. And he gathers them together at Mizpah. There's a big gathering. And Mizpah's a town. And they all get together and they have a big church service. And it it says that the people ask Samuel, would you cry out to God for us? They're fasting. They're praying. uh, We don't understand all of the rituals they're going through. They're pouring out water before him. But there's one phrase that's important there. We can see evidence of their repentance because he says, or the people say, we have sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against the Lord. And that's the first step in repentance, by the way. When you understand with your mind that you've sinned against God. Many of us 
fake repentance when we get caught. Or we fake repentance when someone calls us out and we go, oh, well, you know, you're probably right. That's bad. I'm working on it. But our mind hasn't really changed. Repentance is more than just a change in behavior. Repentance is a changing of your heart and your mind, and only God can really do that. But we see that in here because it says, the people said to Samuel, would you call out to God for us because we have sinned against the Lord. They put away the idols. They acknowledge their sin. We've sinned. But repentance is more than that. Repentance, we also see, is faith. And faith is what I believe put into action. So they acknowledge that they've sinned against the Lord. They put away the idols. Now they're crying out to God. They're showing, hey, look, Samuel, we have faith in the word of God that you preached to us. We have faith in this. Faith enough to put the idols away, to take the steps we know we're supposed to take, and now we're crying out to God in faith. This is a beautiful thing. This hasn't happened since the death of Eli. This hasn't happened since before the time of Eli. And it's been brought about by this one prophet whose heart totally bent towards God, totally committed to this sermon. Now we see repentance. Now, at that point, you think, well, okay, then everything's good, right? No, because the bad guys see that there's a church service going around on, and they, and they think, oh, they want to fight? They want to scrap? Here we go. In the story, it says the Philistines gathered because they were threatened by this. They don't know what's going on. It also says the people saw the Philistines, and they're full of fear. And they asked Samuel again, don't. Stop crying out to God for us. Now, there's a beautiful picture here of what Samuel does. Samuel doesn't get distracted. He goes, you know what? We need to pause the church service here. Uh, Guys, we need everybody to go get their weapons. Apparently, we have to fight Philistines before we can finish with the... No, he's totally focused. The church service doesn't end. The repentance activity doesn't end. It says he takes... A suckling lamb. That would have been a lamb without blemish. An innocent lamb. A lamb that hadn't even been weaned yet. And he sacrificed this lamb. Burn it all up before the Lord. There's this beautiful picture of atonement. Because the only thing that pays for sin is blood. And here this lamb is sacrificed. And then he cries out. After the acknowledgement of sin, after the idols have been put away, after the steps of faith and belief in this repentance, after the atoning sacrifice, then he cries out to God on behalf of Israel. Now what happens? The Lord thunders, boom. Now, I don't know what that sounded like, but that's one of the tapes I want to see someday in the video room in heaven if there is one, which I'm pretty sure there is, because I've been talking about it for a while, and I think that would make me really happy. In heaven, there's supposed to be a place of happiness, so just go there with me, right? I want to know what that sound was like. Now, obviously, whatever the sound was, Israel heard it, but it didn't strike the same fear. Was it some type of sonic boom, some type of sonic blast? But if there's no wasted words in scripture, it says the Lord thundered from heaven. 
and threw the Philistines into confusion. And it says, even before the Israelites pursued him, they're defeated. They were already done because God did the fighting, because God sent the thunder. They didn't have a ministry plan. They didn't have a battle plan. We don't see any organization at all. It just says, and the Lord thundered and threw them into confusion. Boom, they begin to scatter. And the Israelites pursued them. And they won a great victory. And then here's the best part. There was peace. There was peace in that victory. There was restoration in the victory. It says all the cities that they had lost, they got the cities back. There was peace all throughout the rest of the days of Samuel from the Philistines and the Amorites. And they got their cities back. It was better than it was before. Do you see the progression? There was a sermon. That's the truth of God's word. There was a response and repentance. And there's a great victory. For us, that should give us hope. That should give us hope. I don't know what each person is facing. I don't know what each person is going through. Is it internal? Is it external? Is it internal and external? Is it something we can see? Is it illness? Is it oppression? Is it hopelessness? This isn't a formula I'm driving at. But we see victory. God thunders. The people pursue. And peace comes on the land. And then Samuel does something beautiful. We probably could have turned this into four different sermons, but I won't. I'm trying to stay with the Samuel short sermon motif. Is there's a stone. Samuel sets up a stone. The stone is called Ebenezer, which means stone of help. It's one of the names of God. And we don't know if there was an inscription, but it's a memorial stone. It's to help them remember. You know, you've heard that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And many of us, we get to that part where it says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And we're like, what does that mean? Is it Christmas time? Ebenezer's crew? Well, now you know. It's from 1 Samuel 7. Here I raise my Ebenezer. This is, this is something to be remembered. That we responded to the truth of God in a sermon. We repented And there was victory because the Lord thundered. Let's not forget this. They raised up a stone. The stone of help. And if there was an inscription, we see what Samuel named the stone. For he said in verse 12, Till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. Isn't that an interesting thing to say about the stone? Not just the Lord helped us. Here's a big rock. It was until now the Lord has helped us. Don't miss this, church. Don't miss this. In the till now, he's looking backwards. He's saying we as a people, from the time of Abraham until now, through Egypt, through slavery, through the Red Sea, to Mount Sinai, to the conquest of the land, through the time of the judges, through good and bad, our mistakes, the sin we brought on ourselves, until now, the Lord has helped us. It doesn't say anything about the future. But that's why the stone's there. 
The stone's there to say, from this point to here, until now the Lord has helped us. It's as if it's saying, into the future, we'll look back on this place. Here's a reason for faith in the stone of help. Do you see that? Do you have an Ebenezer in your life? Do you have these little tokens? Do you have these little memorial stones, these memories? You know, I know some families, they, they've kept record, you know, and I've always said, we're, we're not quite that organized. We're still trying to get all the creative memory albums done, right? You don't remember that. Okay, whatever. My wife is working on that. But some folks have like a, like a box or a journal where they keep track of answered prayers or times that God came through. I've kept journals before where I've looked back through and, oh, I remember that moment. There are these till now the Lord has helped us moments. You know, on any given week when I'm sitting in my office here in Buckley over at T1 and still trying to figure out how I'm living here after 18 years when I thought I was only going to live here for two and, th- and thinking back to the time where, where, you know, Tim and I were like, well, we'll give this pastor thing this old college try, right? Maybe they'll let us hang around for a year and then we'll, they'll kick us out eventually. They're going to find some stuff out, right? But sometimes I just look out that window and I look at T2. It's not an idol for me. It's just a building where we are right now. But for me, this is an Ebenezer. It's a stone of remembrance. The stone of help. The only reason we're warm and dry during this message is because God helped. You remember when he gave us money, when he gave us a grant, when he gave us favor and just, boom, there it is. There was a great victory and then they put up a stone so they wouldn't forget the victory. The implication is in the future there's going to be more fights. The implication is that in the future, you're going to need to remember this. How many times have we said following Jesus, it's just not all perfect. It's not all happily ever after. It's not. I wish it was. It will be someday. But while there's breath in our lungs and we live in this fallen world, it's not going to be perfect this side of heaven. I'm not, you're not, they're not, we're not. We're going to need this stone of help to remind us that victory is possible when the Lord thunders. That's a big deal. If you were looking carefully, you saw Jesus all throughout this story. There's foreshadowing of Jesus all throughout the story, especially in Samuel. Samuel, the prophet that came preaching. We know Jesus came preaching and teaching. And the one that came before Jesus his cousin, John the Baptist, who, who preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we see foreshadowing of Jesus in that there was a sermon. We see foreshadowing in Jesus in the way that Samuel interceded for the people. It says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is forever interceding before us, before the throne of grace. Do you know what that means? That means Jesus Before the throne of God the Father is our lawyer. He's our advocate. He's our translator. That's why you hear me say things like, there's no such thing as a bad prayer. Oh, oh, you pray so much better than I do. Would you pray, Pastor? No, he probably will hear you quicker. Because we have Jesus 
who intercedes for us. Scripture says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we see Samuel, he's interceding for the people. They say, cry out to God for us. They're trying to serve him with their whole heart. They're putting away their idols. They don't even really know how to do it. And so just like Jesus, Samuel's interceding for them. He's mediating before them as a priest as he prepares the sacrifice. And then, of course, we see Jesus in the lamb. We see Jesus in the lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I paused this week to think about this because I know there's got so many kids in the room. There'll be kids in the room in Manistee. And if you're reading the Bible to your kids, you know, uh, I know this is something I would think about as a little kid is why did that little suckling lamb have to die? The little suckling lamb didn't have any idols. The little suckling lamb was just uh, hoping one day to go to the 4-H fair and win a button. Well, there's a reason that the suckling lamb had to die. The God that we serve requires blood as a sacrifice. And so I think it's a, there's a reason that the scripture says Samuel took a suckling lamb because they're the cutest, right? It's like the kids and the wife in my house, they're obsessed with anything that's little. It could be anything. It could be a wolverine. If it's a baby, oh, how cute. Can we have one? You don't want a wolverine, they'll grow up and kill you, Right? Or a platypus, oh, they're so cute when they're little. Really? An anteater, they're disgusting creatures. They look like, you know, mutant possums or something, which are also just, dis- oh, but baby possums are so cute. I think that's one of the reasons it says they took a suckling lamb. It's jarring, isn't it? An innocent, pure, spotless lamb, not even ready to be away from its mother yet. And that was killed. Its blood spilt and burned before God. Now, how can all the sins of all those people and all their debauchery and wickedness and greed and lust with the Baals and the Ashtaroth, how can all that be paid for by one innocent baby lamb? Only by faith. Only by faith. Which, by the way, is the only way that your sin and mine can possibly be paid for. Jesus. John said about him, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. My sin and your sin and their sin piled on Jesus, the lamb that was slain. So our sin could be atoned for. We see Jesus all over the place. And of course, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 57, it says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can be a loser. You can be the worst. You can be the most vile creature full of wickedness that ever dragged himself into a church. But thanks be to God who can give you victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what mountain you're facing. I don't know what situation you're feeling desperate in. You're feeling forgotten. You're feeling depressed. You're anxious. You're lost. You're full of fear. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a little perspective shift, isn't it? And when that happens, and, and this isn't a formula, I can't make it happen, and neither can you. But when that happens, we experience the Lord thundering into our lives. And victories are won. What's the big point for us? I think we see it in this progression, and it's simply this. There is no victory without repentance. There is no victory without repentance. Now, that might seem obvious if if it's, well, you know, obviously there'll be no victory in my life and I won't spend eternity with Jesus unless I repent. Yeah, that's, that's a victory there. But there's other victories that also have to come and they won't come without repentance first. Relationally, there's no victory without repentance. Until I acknowledge my sin, I've sinned before God, before this person. I acknowledge at least my part. But there's more repentance that comes after that. You see, sometimes the reason we don't experience victory, and it's clear in my mind, I don't know if it'll be clear in my words, but sometimes it's because we've erected other false idols. We've made an idol out of our marriage. We've made an idol out of our spouse. We've made an idol out of our church or out of our preacher or out of a program or out of a ministry. We've made an idol out of money. You say, okay, I repent. Now surely I'm going to win the lottery. No, you need to repent. So now you don't care if you win the lottery or not. Stop wasting your money for a minute. There's no victory in that area of your life, a victory that matters until there's repentance first. I don't think these people like me. So I'm not going to talk with them. I'm going to stay away from them. Well, maybe there needs to be some repentance. No, they need to repent. I don't. Uh-oh, gotcha. I'm going to stop caring about that when I stop making these people and what they think of me an idol. I'm going to repent of that and say, God, only your opinion matters. Then I can experience victory there. The relationship, uh, that still takes two to tango. But as for my part, I can have victory When I start with repentance, when I put away the idols, I serve God with my whole heart. I direct my heart towards him. I trust in the atonement. I cry out to him. Victory will follow. It always follows. My challenge for us is if there's an area of your life where you're desperate for victory, where you're desperate for God to show up and to thunder, What if you were to start by looking at yourself and what are some areas I need to repent of? Let me just give you one example. There's an election coming up. Sorry, I just had to choose this one because it's easy. All right? Now, I don't care what side you're on. I really don't. Keep it to yourself. This is Switzerland here. God is king, not your candidate. All right? But there's so much anxiety and there's so much fear And we're worried that our side has victory, whatever your side is. I can assure you of victory right now. I can assure you that your side will have victory right now if you start with repentance. Repent of what? Repent of the idol that you've made about your future. Repent of the idol that you've made that you need to be ta- have taxes to be a certain way, immigration to be a certain way, Supreme Court justices to be a certain way, whatever it else. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't important. I've done this a thousand times, church. I think I've got a track record here. But long ago, 
I surrendered this idol to God and I go to sleep real nice on election night. I care and I vote. I do. And you should too. But I can guarantee victory in Christ if you make sure you're on his side with your whole heart. When you're on his side with your whole heart, you can live without fear. And forever, our lives are a challenge to not walk in fear. That's clear in my mind. I don't know if that made sense to you at all. But you can have victory over that anxiety, over the angst, over the having to be right. We got to win. We got to uh, stick it to them. Ah, man, you can just have victory right now. Oh, really? Oh, you're going to side with that one or that one? Yeah, I serve a king. He's better. No fear. No fear. And I guarantee you, the morning after the election, God will still be on his throne. I guarantee, I, I guarantee you on January 20th, when someone is sworn in, Jesus will still be king. That he won't stop being God. That he won't stop being in control. And when we surrender ourselves to that sovereignty, we can experience real victory and real peace. Real peace. And maybe then some sort of restoration. There's no victory without repentance. God won't share his glory. God won't share his worship. He's a holy God. And he wants every part of us. He wants our hearts. He wants all of it, including mine. I was looking this week and found a quote from the great, late, great A.W. Tozer who said this. Just let this sink in. He says, we must never rest until everything inside us worships God. Let me read that again with a different emphasis. We must never rest until everything inside us worships God. The dad in me, the husband in me, the pastor in me, the coach in me, the scared little boy in me, the little boy that worries about what other people think in me, the one who fears about tomorrow, the insecure me, the depressed me, the happy me, the Notre Dame fan in me. We must never rest, church, and God won't either until everything inside of us, everything inside of you worships him. But when that happens, there's a victory. The Lord thunders. He still works. We bow your heads and let's pray together. God, you know our hearts, you know our hopes, you know our fears. God, I pray that your word would reveal idols that need to be surrendered to you.
God, I thank you that you're not a God among many gods, but you're the one true God. God, I thank you that you've demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus Christ as a lamb to take our sin, our shame, our pain, our anguish, and to take it to the cross. God, would you help us to be men and women, people that place our faith and our trust in you and you alone? Would you grant us victory, Lord? But first, would you convict us to repent for your sake and for our joy? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.